From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shimes. And I'm Tracy McRae. End-of-life decisions. You know, by planning ahead, you can get the medical care you want, avoid unnecessary suffering, and relieve caregivers of making tough health care decisions when you can't. We'll learn about the importance of having an advanced directive. A lot of times there are so many what-ifs in an advanced directive, and even all the way up to and after death decisions, it's just a very daunting task for people to undertake. It's really, though, a gift to your family members to complete an advanced directive. And also on the program, we'll discuss the do's and don'ts of sunscreen, and we'll hear about exciting advances in anesthesia. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, it's not something, Tracy, that any of us really want to talk about, but it's important to know what kind of medical care you want if you're ever too ill or too sick to tell someone to express your wishes. By planning ahead, you can relieve your caregivers of having to make those decisions for you during a time of crisis or grief. Advanced directives are legal documents that allow you to spell out your decisions about end-of-life care ahead of time. They give you a way to tell your wishes to your family, friends, and healthcare professionals in hopes to avoid confusion later on. Here to talk about creating advanced directives are the director of the Biomedical Ethics Program at the Mayo Clinic Center for Individualized Medicine, Dr. Richard Sharp, and medical ethics researcher and pulmonary and critical care medicine fellow and recent graduate of the BEST program, Dr. Aaron DiMartino, good morning to you all. Good morning. Welcome. Good to see you both. But you have a lot of titles. <laughs> Explain what the BEST program is, right. first of all. So it's a training program for people who have an interest in um, building their expertise in ethics research in any realm within ethics. So it can be something like genetics research, or in my case, particularly because of my own clinical interests, um, I have focused more in end-of-life ethics research. All right, both of you, you know, advanced directives, not the kind of topic that's necessarily something you want to discuss at the dinner table, but it's truly important, isn't it? Dr. Sharp, why should everyone be concerned about it and, and think about having an advanced directive? Well, regrettably, we never can tell when circumstances may change, and we may find ourselves in um, a bad situation where we are facing difficult choices about our end-of-life care automobile accidents, tragedies, unforeseen illnesses that sneak up on us and so forth, all of those things can put us in a position where we have to talk with physicians about uh, our goals of care and the kinds of treatments that we would find acceptable or unacceptable. Are, p- are patients becoming more uh, accepting of the idea of making an advanced directive? I think that many patients are. I, I think that this is, with an aging population, a topic that more people feel comfortable talking about. There's certainly been more media coverage of circumstances in which there were challenges that families faced with regard to making end-of-life decisions. And together, but with the aging population and the media coverage, I think we are seeing more families talking about advanced directives. Regrettably, that hasn't translated into a higher proportion of families completing advanced directives, though. Still, the majority of the adult population doesn't have one, correct? 
That's correct, and we, we have a little bit of data on that, but roughly one in four individuals have completed advanced directives. Adults in the United States have completed advanced directives, and we'd love to see that percentage being closer to 95 or 100 percent. Dr. DiMartino, is there a difference between an advanced directive and a living will? Are those phrases just used interchangeably? So an advanced directive is an umbrella term, and it en- encompasses several different components of a legal document. So one part of an advanced directive is a living will, and that allows a patient to describe or record care preferences for care that they may receive down the road if they were to become too sick to make their own decisions. Another part of it is a durable power of attorney for health care, and that allows you to designate a decision maker who could step in who presumably knows what your wishes are and could speak to your wishes and values and health care goals. So an advanced directive can include a living will, it can include a durable power of attorney for health care, or it can have both. And most states' advanced directives actually encompass both of those. Why is it? What, what happens if you don't have one of these? That's a great question. So end-of-life care and advanced directives are, are governed on a state-by-state level. So it actually depends on which state you're in at the time that you lose the ability to make your own decisions, how your care will be handled, and who will make decisions for you. So if you are in some states and you don't have an advanced directive, the state lawmakers have created essentially a hierarchy of other people who could make decisions for you, usually starting with a spouse or partner and then advancing to uh, an adult child or a sibling. But in other states, and Minnesota is one of those states, there actually isn't a mechanism for appointing a specific person. And so caretakers in the hospital tend to look for an interested person or people who express care and concern and make decisions on behalf of the patient uh, with the most appropriate people who have come forward to help in those circumstances. I'm fascinated by uh, friends whose parents have not consciously do not make any of these choices known. They won't do an advanced directive, they won't do a living will, and they are adamant that they will not do it. And I really don't understand Can either of you explain what are some reasons why patients don't want to have these? So I think, as Dr. Shive said at the beginning, it's a very uncomfortable thing to think about. What what do I want if things get worse? What would it look like? How can I know? Exactly. And that's the other point, is how on earth would you know what it would feel like if you were to become very sick and lose the ability to breathe on your own? Can you really project into the future as to what your wishes would be? And a lot of times there are so many what-ifs in an advanced directive, and even all the way up to and after death decisions, like what you would want done with your remains, it's just a very daunting task for people to undertake. And some people kind of prefer to defer those decisions to somebody else who they know and love and trust. It's really, though, a gift to your family members to complete an advanced directive and to at least talk to your family about what your wishes are, even if you 
don't decide you want to sign the paper. Is is it complicated to do this? I mean, and uh, you've talked about one of one of the barriers, and that's uh, we none of us think we're going to die or be in that situation. But of course, it could happen to any of us. But but what else? What are the other barriers? Why don't people do it? So it's actually very simple to complete an advanced directive. Um, they at every hospital admission or when you're at your doctor's office, you should be notified of the ability um, or the possibility of completing an advanced directive and be given forms um, that you could fill out that would be valid in your state. You can also go to your state's website and print out forms from the internet. The forms themselves take a few minutes to complete, and depending on which state you're in, they could either be notarized or, in some cases, just witnessed by two adults. Can Do you start it off with, do you want to do do not resuscitate, and then mm-hmm. that's it? I mean, or as it continues to go, you can ask more and more questions about what sort of care you want. But is that where it starts, is with the DNR? It doesn't have to start with a DNR. In my opinion, the most important question is who. Okay. Who should make the decision for you? And if you have any additional preferences beyond that that are very strong, you can include those in your advance directive. But the single most important is to designate a person who you want to make your decisions for you and to follow that up by telling the individual and telling the individual a bit about what you would want and having a conversation because I can't tell you how many times we contact the family member of a patient who's in the intensive care unit and not able to speak for him or herself. And we speak with the family member and it's the first time the family member has ever learned that they are um, listed on an advanced directive. Right. You're on the hot spot. <laughs> We're talking about advanced directives with Mayo Clinic experts on medical ethics, Dr. Richard Sharp and Dr. Aaron DiMartino. Time for a short break, but when we, when we come back. Myth or matter of fact, if I name a health care proxy, I give up the right to make my own decisions. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. We're back talking about advanced directives with Dr. Richard Sharp and Dr. Aaron DiMartino. So the two of you, myth or matter of fact, if I name a healthcare proxy, I give up the right to make my own decisions. Is that a myth or is that a fact? That's a myth. In fact, a patient can change their advanced directives at any time, and one of the things that we really encourage people to do is to revisit these issues over time. Uh, you may make a decision about who you'd want to designate as your health care power of attorney uh, at one moment in life, and as uh, time goes on, you might want to revisit that as you get to know other people in your life a little bit better, and maybe they understand your preferences a little bit better. In addition, your, your circumstances in terms of your health and wellness can change over time, too. So we recommend that people revisit these issues, even if they've completed the form at least every one or two years. So we talked a little bit about the specifics, but one question, um, if, if you fill one of these out, an advanced directive, and then you change your mind, can you revoke it? You can revoke it. You can revoke it at any time. Um, you can do that even when you're in the hospital for a particular admission. Uh, anytime that you want to change your uh, health care power of attorney or your living will, you can do so. You can revoke it. And once you do fill one of these out, who, ought, who should have a copy? Great question. Uh, as many people as may be impacted by that decision. So certainly all of your loved ones, your family members, you may want to keep a, a copy of that in a safe place, in a safe at home. You may want to give a copy to an attorney. Uh, as many people as you think may actually be impacted by a future choice about your health. And your physician. 
Uh, sure. It would be important to bring it into the hospital, and most electronic medical records now have an area where that document can be scanned into the computer system so that we have easy access to it in the event of an emergency. You mentioned that these are, are state-specific. Mm-hmm. So what would happen if you filled out an advance directive in Minnesota and you were on vacation in Florida, and that's when you became unconscious or that's right. And severely that's, ill? Unfortunately, that does happen, and almost every state has what we would call a reciprocity clause, meaning that they recognize a legally valid directive from another state, um, unless there's something in that directive that doesn't abide by the particular state's law where you are at the moment of the injury. And you said it's it's pretty simple and straightforward to fill this out because you can go to your state website mm-hmm. uh, and, and get Put in Living Wills, Minnesota or Living Wills, Wyoming, and then it will come up. You fill it out. And in some states, you need a notary, and in other states, just a witness? Mm-hmm. Usually two witnesses, but yes, that's right. It can be that simple. So you can do this without an attorney? Yes, absolutely. And, and it doesn't cost you anything? It doesn't cost anything. And what about a video advance directive, which is the reason why you're here? So let's get to that. Uh, how, how does that work, and how is that different, and how is it better? So um, we are exploring the use of video as a medium to help with what we would call advanced care planning. So not just the legal document of an advanced directive, but also just the more general promoting conversation and promoting an awareness of what an individual's wishes are for their future care. So along those lines, we have been um, working this year on a pilot research project where we are having patients record a short video about their own personal legacy and also a short video about their care preferences, what's most important to them about their medical care, what abilities are most important to them. And the total video is about five minutes long that could be played at some point in the future. And obviously we hope that we'd never have to access those videos, but Unfortunately, we do. And are you finding it that that's easier for some patients to complete than uh, downloading paperwork and filling it out? Yeah. Well, we we are hearing from our patients that it is not as daunting. There's not all the legal mumbo-jumbo jargon that's very difficult to understand. It's easier to inject your own personality. Sure. And so is, uh, in this video, is someone just interviewing this person and saying, I'll just read these questions and ask and you just tell me? That's probably what's happening, right? That's part of the research process is that we have gone through a careful process to develop the right questions to ask to kind of open people up so that they'll record a video that really encapsulates who they are and captures their personality at that moment in time, almost like a time capsule. Hmm. And so ideally, just like an advanced directive that you can download and do at home, this too would be something that you could record on a mobile device and either have a family member redo the questions or actually the video would have the ability to read the questions to you and you just answer them and you could literally record your own in your own house with your own smartphone. So you could have then a wristband that says, uh, medical alert, watch my video. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and actually um, also a pocket card so that it could be in your wallet and there's a scan code. 
So tell me if I'm wrong. I think if you are a patient at the Mayo Clinic and you come for a visit or you're a new patient uh, or follow-up visit, they say to you, do you have an advanced directive? And you say yes or no. And if you don't have one, they give you the form to fill out, but you don't have to fill it out. Is that the way it works? So in the early 1990s, in response to a lot of famous um, cases of patients who didn't have advanced directives, mm. um, the U.S. Congress passed a law called the Patient Self-Determination Act, or that's what it's been now um, nicknamed. Patient Self-Determination Act. That's right. And that law states that upon admission to a facility that receives federal funding, uh, a patient must be notified of their right to complete an advanced directive mm-hmm. and thereby influence their future care. But it also states that your care cannot be contingent upon completion of that advanced mm-hmm. directive. In other words, it doesn't force people to do it, but it educates people that it's a possibility. I can't make you do it. That's right. So uh, we were talking about uh, filling out the form, and it sounds like it, it's somewhat complicated. I mean, I thought there might be just a form where you check some boxes and say, I want this, I want this, <laughs> I want this. Do you actually have to, it's like you have to write an essay about what you want? or well, uh, Tell us about the form. I mean, uh, you know, it, it, it sounds so simple, so straightforward, and, and that everybody ought to do it, but why do, uh, is the form difficult? So the forms vary by state, um, and <laughs> and there are a few forms that are extremely patient-friendly that are recognized by several states, but there is no one form that's recognized by all states. Um, and I think that there's, there's kind of a range of how much legal language is in these forms. Generally, the patient's portion to fill out will involve several focused questions, including the designation of an alternate decision maker, but then also some um, care preferences, such as whether they would ever want to be mechanically ventilated, um, whether they would want to receive antibiotics if they were, um, if they had a serious infection. But as I said, some of them go on for pages with a lot of other consideration of different um, improbable future circumstances. So it really depends. Yeah, so no matter how complex or how simple, you ought to do it. Everybody ought to have an advanced directive. And I, that's your goal. I think everybody ought to at least designate a durable power of attorney for health care because that's a simple question. When I ask patients in the hospital who are very sick, who do you want to make decisions for you? I've never had anybody hesitate. They always have somebody in mind that they trust. So that's the first step. Yeah. Tracy, are you going to keep me alive? (laughs) Sure I will, Dr. Shives. (laughs) Thanks very much, Dr. Sharp, Dr. DiMartino, for explaining the importance of having an advanced directive. Everybody ought to have one. Dr. Richard Sharp is director of the Biomedical Ethics Program at the Mayo Clinic Center for Individualized Medicine. Dr. Aaron DiMartino is a medical ethics researcher at Mayo Clinic. Thanks to both of you for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll discuss the importance of using sunscreen. And later in the program, we'll hear about advances in anesthesia. Do you have health-related questions you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like us to cover? You can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send an email to mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. 
You've got the footwear, but do you have the fuel for your workout? Carbohydrate is the source of that energy your muscles need, so give that energy to them. Mayo Clinic dietitian Angie Murad says if possible, eat a balanced meal a few hours before pumping iron or hitting the trail. Avoid fats, limit fiber, and include a variety of natural carbs from grains, fruits, and milk. So for breakfast, you could have oatmeal with a little brown sugar, some raisins, a glass of milk with it, and some berries. And if you've got less than an hour until your workout, focus solely on the carbs. That's the primary energy source. Murad suggests a sports drink, a serving of your favorite fruit, even a small jam sandwich. And sports gels and gummies can also give a quick carb boost. I would recommend focusing more on foods first, but if you're in a pinch and you need something easy, these are options. Options for fuel to go along with your footwear. And in other news, let's talk about midlife crises. Are they real or a big myth? The term midlife crisis was coined in 1965 by a Canadian doctor to describe challenges during the time of transition and self-reflection many adults experience from age 40 to 60. Now, during these years, some people question who they are in this world and in their life, what their purpose is, and how they have used their time so far. These questions can be triggered by the realization of the passage of time or things such as a health scare or a diminished ability to do what you used to be able to do. Mayo experts say with all these changes, some people get depressed. So here are some tips that can help. Stay active, get outside, stay social with friends and family, and try meditating. Now, it's normal to go through this change. If you need help, reach out to your health care provider. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, Tracy, it's summertime. And you know what that means? You and the other girls are out there on your blankets on the beach getting a suntan. Absolutely not. Although what? I used to back before there was such a thing as sunscreen. Well, I know it. And it, it's, it, we've learned so much. That you, you're right. We've talked about it before. There was no such thing as sunscreen. And tell us about your high school, your picture, your prom picture. I don't want to. It was way, I was way too tan. Let's just talk about sunscreen with our guest, Dermot. I know, I'm just trying to get away. We're not going to include that picture with this post, by the way. Uh, Mayo Clinic Dermatologist, Dr. Jerry Brewer. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Brewer. Thank you, Tom and Tracy. Pleasure. All right, sunscreen's a big deal, isn't it? Especially in the dermatologist's office. So, what do you like? How often should you use it? And why is it important? Sunscreens are, are uh, very important because it can prevent the most common form of cancer out there. And in fact, if you only use an SPF of 15, but do it regularly, you can reduce your chances of skin cancer by 50%. So basal, squamous, and melanoma, it covers all three of those. Mm-hmm. And uh, the SPF thing, it's a little confusing to everybody. I mean, why do they even have SPF 15 if it isn't as good as SPF 30? Uh. <laughs> That's a good point. It's, um, it's, it is a confusing concept. It basically means if we put you out in the sun in Hawaii and it only takes your skin two minutes to burn in that hot sun, then an SPF of two would um, double your time before you would burn. Um, but, but it is a little confusing. They have different ranges of, of SPF. The higher the SPF, the more goopy and thick. So some people tend to go towards the, the lower SPF because it goes on a little easier, yeah, okay. um, that sort of a thing. How far has sunscreen come? I oh. mean, it really has basically been invented. It has been invented in our lifetime. Is that right? 
I would think so, yeah. Okay, and so what the first version of it that I ever saw was an SPF of four, which I don't even know if you can buy anymore. But uh, what was it like when it started? Uh, yeah, it, it was it was probably a little different smell and probably really goopy, creamy, oily. Nobody it's, wanted to use it. Yeah. <laughs> Is there anything else you have to look for other than the number? I mean, aren't there some sunscreens that aren't as good as others uh, despite what the number says? You want to make sure it guards against both UVB and UVA, and that, that used to be a little bit more of a, of a bigger deal. Nowadays, almost every sunscreen oh. is going to be broad spectrum, but you just want to make sure that it covers a broad spectrum of ultraviolet radiation, and and people would probably say uh, that you that would recommend you want to try to get around an SPF of 45 just to make sure you're covered for a good chunk of time. Is that what you use? That's what I use. I yeah. want to know what my dermatologist uses. <laughs> so, uh, but I think they say on there that they are water resistant, but they're not water repellent, right? I mean, if you get in the water, you got to put it back on. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, and anytime you're swimming, it's just gonna you need to put it on right when you get back out of the water. And what about the there's spray has been around for just a couple of years now. I mean, maybe we're moving into five or six years now, it seems. But that's the one that my kids prefer. And they will spray their entire body for the total of about eight seconds. And I say, yeah, that's probably not quite going to cut it. So how do you need to use spray sunscreen differently? There are some people that would um, argue sprays don't really work all that well. And... Um, that you should try to go towards the cream. In my opinion, it's kind of like a, your skin's bank account, and something's better than nothing. And and, and my kids love the spray, mm-hmm. and there are a lot of guys I know that love the spray but hate the creams. And so what I say is use something that you'll use, and if that's the spray, great, and that's better than nothing. Yeah, it's a lot easier to put on, especially for a kid. I mean, they're in a hurry. <laughs> they got to get to the pool. Well, at my they house... They don't have time to slop t- that stuff off. And they're not happy. They'll do it for the first few days, but I say, okay, you can either wear a snowsuit or sunscreen. Which do you want? <laughs> So far, not a lot of compliance, but they're getting better. And is is it? Uh, do you think it's easier for kids to understand that now? Yeah, I think so. I, my my kids, uh, compared to when I was growing up, I think really comprehend the importance of that way better than I ever did. Okay, there's one thing that I have learned um, in the course of doing this radio program, and it is the care of your sunscreen. Mm. And so yesterday, when I was parked in the parking lot and the car next to me had a can of sunscreen sitting on the front seat, I wanted to write a little note on there. <laughs> Stick it under their windshield wiper that said, um, that's not a good idea. Yeah. Explain yeah. that. Yeah, you want to make sure that it doesn't boil in the in the oven of your car, you know, and, and sunscreens have a um, kind of a timeline, kind of like time frame to them when they're effective. And so you want to make sure you have fresh sunscreen every once in a while. You don't want to leave it in the golf cart um, all summer and then use it. But uh, you're right, Tracy. Yeah, make sure you have good, fresh stuff. Yeah. So sunscreens have a certain life expectancy. So probably every season you ought to get it. You ought to restock. Yeah, good idea. Well, and it shouldn't even last for a whole season. That's the other thing That's I've right. learned, right? That yeah. we're probably not using enough. So give us some guidelines on how we should be using our sunscreen. If you're at a beach wearing a, a bathing suit, then to put it on appropriately, you need to use a, at least a shot glass full. For your whole body. For your whole body. Okay. Yep. And um, most people use at least half that much, mm-hmm. or if not less than that. So, yeah, that's a good thing you to, to remember. You just have to use enough of it to have that spectrum of coverage that's on the bottle. Yeah, didn't I read a story recently that a shocking percentage of people do not apply enough sunscreen when they apply their sunscreen for mm. the day? Yeah. Yeah, but he did say something's better than nothing. It so is. It's true. <laughs> there has been, in the past, I've heard about a pill that you can take that was being tested, maybe being developed, that you could get a prescription 
for a pill that would be your sunscreen. Where are we at with that? Yeah, I've heard a little bit about that. When you, when you get exposed to ultraviolet radiation, which is a carcinogen, it causes DNA damage, and as a result of that, your body increases the darkness of your skin as a protecting agent for future DNA damage. And so a tan is actually a sign that you've had DNA damage. So the thought is, can you take something that stimulates that darkening of your skin that will give you more protection without the previous DNA damage? And that's still in the works as far as I know. I think the jury's out of whether that's going to happen or not, but it's kind of interesting where technology might take us in the future, a pill sort of form of a sunscreen. Is there any other research that is being conducted into those ends? I think there is. I don't know a whole lot about it, but I'm curious to see where the future goes with that. All right, myth or matter of fact, if you're planning a winter getaway uh, to a sunny location, it's a good idea to go to the tanning booth before you leave uh, to uh, prevent a sunburn when you get there. Myth or matter of fact. Base tan. That's that's a myth, yeah. And the reason why is... um, You might have a baseline tan that might prevent you from getting burned, which is usually from ultraviolet B radiation, but it's not going to really prevent you from getting the damage from the UVA and and damage from UVB as well. And I think um, from what I've heard, having that baseline tan is only like an SPF of 2, so it's it's really not that that much protection. And plus you have to have DNA damage to get that baseline tan, so it's really not worth it. So when you get tan, the the damage has already been done. That's right. It looks good, but... It's not good for you. And skin. is that why people are afraid of the burn because the burn hurts? That they should know that the da- the tan is just as damaging as the burn, that's or even more so. That's right. Yeah, ultraviolet A uh, can be associated with melanoma, from what we think, and that one does not burn the skin. Um, and you can get ultraviolet A through windshields, and so you can get damage without having the burn just by, for example, driving a long distance. Well, that's interesting, and that's why your colleague, Dr. Don Davis, slops it on first thing in the morning, a full jigger full, face, hands, everything, right? Right. Do You don't use it every day, do you? Uh, not every day. Okay, every other. <laughs> it's all about t- duration, that's uh, what it is. That's right, and consistency. consistency. Dermatologist, Dr. Jerry Brewer, thanks so much. SPF 45, your favorite. My favorite. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Thanks for being with us. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll learn about advances in the use of anesthesia during surgery. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. High-tech advances, including the use of robotics, are changing how surgery is done. We know that. For example, the surgical removal of the prostate or prostatectomy is now more and more. It's being done with a robot, which is just guided by the surgeon. Robotics and a certain level of automation are also being used in the field of anesthesiology. In 2013, the FDA approved a device that administers anesthesia during colonoscopy. Just how do such devices work? Will we see more of them, and how safe are they? Joining us to answer these and other questions about changes in the field of anesthesiology is Mayo Clinic anesthesiologist Dr. Denise Waddell. Welcome to the program. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Waddell. Always nice to have you. Great. It's always great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. You know, when it comes to anesthesia, we've come a long way, baby. (laughs) Haven't we, though? (laughs) Yeah. When I was a medical student, we had a blood pressure cuff and a bag we would squeeze. And 
when the blood pressure would go up, meaning the patient was starting to wake up, you'd squeeze the bag a little harder. Mm -hmm. It's so different, isn't it? It's remarkably different. And I think um, the differences span this last 30 years. I've seen so many changes that it's, it's almost a completely different practice. And one of the fascinating things about anesthesiologists to me, and I think is why I was drawn to the specialty, is they love tech toys, okay, <laughs> anesthesiologists mm-hmm. and, and anesthesia providers overall love technology, and they love change. So it's been a specialty that has overall embraced change through the years, and that's been a really positive thing for patient uh, care, for patient safety, and for patient management. But did either of you ever think that you'd see a robot helping with anesthesia? I'm only going to say yes because this has been attempted in sort of preliminary stages over the 30 years I've been an anesthesiologist. Okay. And it started out, um, and, and, and we use so many technical things. Many people compare the uh, anesthesia area as a, similar to a cockpit now because we have mm-hmm. a variety of machines, a huge array of displays, and you know more and more technology involved all the time. But even back, I'm going to say 20 years ago in the orthopedics, remember we had the little nerve monitor, Tom, that mm-hmm. would uh, give more nerve... Uh, block uh, medication based on the uh, amount of twitch that the patient had in their thumb. Hmm. So even back 20 years ago, we were trying to do these automated processes. They weren't very successful at that time. This is the new step, the the latest thing that you've brought up. So explain explain it it to us. (laughs) I know, everyone's so excited about about it. it. You know, Um, you got so much stuff up there now, there's hardly room for the surgeon. I'm afraid if you get a a robot up there too, we'll be forced right out of the room. Always be room for you in radio, Tom. <laughs> yeah, well, we're always a little afraid that the robots are going to replace us, but so far they haven't replaced our surgical colleagues, so we're feeling pretty good about that. Um, this is more of um, a, an automated machine, however, than, than what we would visualize as a robot. I'd love to, I'd actually love to work with a robot, but I don't think that's going to happen in my lifetime. Um, the Jetsons, I think, had a, had a major effect on me. But um, what this does is it delivers a drug called propofol, and this drug is used in many of our anesthetics at present. It's an intravenous agent, and it gives that drug in a graduated way according to how the patient's vital signs are responding. So in one sense, it sounds theoretically very safe. In another sense, I think if it, uh, you know, one of our concerns is that it will put the anesthesiologist or anesthesia care, trained care people fairly remotely from the patient if something does happen. So those are the pluses and minuses of it in a nutshell. Propofol, that's the Michael Jackson drug. Thank you for bringing that up. I almost said that because that's how people associate it. Right. In fact, that drug was inappropriately used to induce sleep. It doesn't induce a, a really normal kind of sleep, but more of an anesthetic sleep in Michael Jackson and was uh, uh, ultimately caused his death. So it's dangerous, and that's why you have to have a professional there who knows how to use it. And so that's where you come in. And maybe a robot might not understand that. And of course, it's not a robot's job to understand that, but that's where... 
the key piece is, right? They Correct. still need you, you think? I think they still need <laughs> us. I, I, I'm, I'm holding on to that hope anyway. Here's what's happening in anesthesia that's interesting, and this plays into this. As our um, ability to monitor the patients has improved and gotten more technical, we have been able to step back and cover a little bit more remotely with the help of our extended care team. Um, that includes uh, primarily nurse anesthetists who are very highly trained. Um, and at, at this point in our program are actually achieving PhDs along with their uh, nurse anesthesia degrees. So what we're doing in healthy patients or patients who have you know not significant comorbidities is we are able to actually cover more rooms with these uh, very highly trained extended care folks with the help of all of these monitors. And this uh, this particular automated thing should, should help. Where we are concerned is that it, be, it is somewhat marketed as if it could take over the role of trained anesthesia care people, and that could be dangerous. Yeah, and particularly, it probably would never take over your role, but potentially uh, part of what the nurse anesthetist does. And explain to us uh, what the nurse anesthetist does, because uh, they are a vital part of your team. They're, and I would say anesthesia is one of the first specialties to actually have this extended care team and use it in a very, very functional and appropriate way. And the nurse anesthetist is a direct ex- extension of the anesthesia care team, and often the person who is right in in the room with the patient. Now, let me be clear. There are practices where all, um, the, all of the anesthesia is delivered by an anesthesiologist. And there are practices like ours where we have a large number of nurse anesthetists who um, we work together with to manage patients. So what the nurse anesthetist does is um, they're right in the room with the patient. They deliver the anesthetic medications, monitor the patient's condition, are in direct contact with the patient so that they can modulate the amount of anesthetic drug that's being given to provide the safest and, uh, and yet the most comfortable setting for that patient. This piece of machinery is in its most aggressive way touted as taking the place of that by its ability to titrate or give a graduated amount of propofol according to the feedback it's getting from the monitors that it's it's following, which are which are limited compared to what a nurse anesthetist is looking at in a patient. They're they're believe they are suggesting that they can actually replace that very highly trained and of course a little more expensive individual in the room. Um, we're concerned that that may not be as successful as it's suggested to be. But you are always available, and you are always there when the patient goes to sleep, and you're always there when the patient wakes up. It's somewhat analogous to a, a, an airplane flight, isn't it? I mean, the two most dangerous times are when you take off and when you land, and most of the time, probably in between, it's on autopilot. But you're there, and you're also immediately available should anything happen during the, this, the procedure. Right, right. And and, and comparing it to an airplane flight, I think, is a very good way because in most flights, nothing goes wrong. Everything can be pretty much automated. You're there to help with takeoff and landing and anything that might happen in between. But as we know, if a critical event occurs, a flock of geese fly <laughs> into your engine, for example, which can occur under anesthesia um, in a similar way, um, there are trained personnel immediately available to get you through that crisis. 
and uh, land the plane safely. Yeah, I got to tell you, I would a lot rather have you there than a robot. So I hope it doesn't happen while while we're working in my lifetime. I'm with you. Anesthesiologist Dr. Denise Waddell, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. And that's our program for this week. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Have a question about health and medicine for one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We will be answering your questions in upcoming programs. Hello to all our listeners in Roanoke, Virginia, who hear Mayo Clinic Radio on WFJX AM. Mayo Clinic Radio is now heard on more than 90 stations nationwide and in Canada. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our writer and social media editor for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.